Okay, welcome back to the Imaginary Advice podcast. My name is Ross Sutherland. Um, I'm recording this episode, start of August 2020. And at this point in time, the UK, it's um, it's currently relaxed. Some of it's quarantine measures. But for my own health reasons, I'm choosing to remain inside for the time being, at least until track and trace systems are up and fully functioning, which... It's apparently going to take several more months, so nothing has really sort of changed for me recently uh, in my little hermited life. So at the time of recording, I've been in my house for um, 152 days. That's um, just under five months inside. And look, uh, I'm totally fine with this. Personally, I'm doing fine. So many people's lives right now are far, far more complicated than mine and I have huge respect and love for everyone's strength and determination through this for me like personally the the universe shrinking to the size of my house hasn't affected me too badly but still you know it's um it's been necessary to develop some coping strategies like um keeping a jigsaw going i'm never going to be someone who can meditate but if i have a jigsaw going on the dining table that means whenever i need to i can go clear my mind and think about abstract shapes for a couple of minutes also gives me a new place where i can listen to podcasts um which i appreciate uh another strategy something to help me measure time i've worn every single item of my clothing in the house uh, I went sequentially through my entire wardrobe, including my suits. Um, I opened the door at a postman in my wedding suit uh, a couple of weeks back. Also, uh, making this podcast has been a coping strategy too. Like, I love making it. I love working on it. And uh, finally, if um, if I ever can't sleep in the night because, you know, the fucking merry-go-round of shit in my head won't switch off, after 20 minutes... I'll get out of bed, come downstairs, and uh, put a film on. Usually I don't watch the whole film, but like I find it a good way to combat insomnia. Because uh, it stops you just like lying there, you know, like a prick. Anyway, let's talk about Groundhog Day. This is one time where television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel predicting the weather. I've seen like a lot of references to Groundhog Day during lockdown. Maybe because it's a it's a film about a shrinking world, a story about endless repetition. COVID isolation has left people feeling like they're living through their own version of the film. Groundhog Day was one of the first films that I ended up watching when lockdown began. One night, I couldn't sleep, so I just got up, came downstairs, stuck it on, and, um, yeah, sure enough, there were a lot of things I noticed in the film that time that, uh, I hadn't noticed before. So, um, this month on the podcast, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna return to Groundhog Day and, uh, see what's new. To help us do this, I emailed a bunch of my favourite artists and uh, asked them if they'd be willing to write something specifically for this episode. So, I'm um, coming up in the second part 
of uh, this project. That's a uh, part two in the feed of this little two-part mini-series. Um, I'm thrilled to say you are going to hear new writing from filmmaker Daniel Coburn, writer, performers Vanessa Kasule and Lenny Sanders, and also comedian Kim Noble. All of them writing on Groundhog Day. Uh, I'm really excited to share their work with you and uh, more on them in a bit. But um, first, before we get any further into this episode, I think I need to recap the story of Groundhog Day. Um, You don't need to have seen the film in order to understand the rest of this episode, but it would help if you had an idea of the story outline. My suspicion is, even if you haven't seen the film, you probably already know the outline because it's just sort of part of the, you know, the cultural tapestry. The film actually has sort of become a film genre in its own right. You know, you think of Edge of Tomorrow, Happy Death Day, Russian Doll. So even if you don't know the film, like you probably know its legacy, time loop movie. Regardless, if you haven't seen Groundhog Day and you have no idea what it's about and you don't want any spoilers, sure, maybe pause this podcast and uh, come back when you're ready. Okay, so the story of Groundhog Day is the story of Phil Connors, a uh, cynical city boy know-it-all, played by Bill Murray, who works as a weatherman for a Pittsburgh news channel. Out in California, they're going to have some warm weather tomorrow, gang wars, and some very overpriced real estate. Up in the Pacific Northwest, as you can see, they're going to have some very, very tall trees. So every February, um, Phil's TV channel sends him out of Pittsburgh, out to rural Punxsutawney to cover the borough's annual Groundhog Day festivities. This particular year, Phil is joined on his trip by his new segment producer, Rita Hansen, played by Andy McDowell, and Larry the Cameraman, played by Chris Elliott, who, as soon as they get on the road, find themselves at odds with Phil, mostly because Rita and Larry, they seem to like their jobs, whereas Phil is just bored and petty and rude. He's seen it all before, and he just doesn't care. Would you like to come to dinner with Larry and me? No, thank you. I've seen Larry eat. (laughs) Now, Groundhog Day, the Groundhog Day festivities, if you're interested, um, it derives from a Pennsylvania Dutch superstition that says if on February 2nd, a groundhog emerges from its burrow and sees its shadow due to clear weather, um, it will then retreat to its den and winter will persist for six more weeks. Um, but if the groundhog sticks its head up and does not see its shadow because of cloudiness, then that means the groundhog's going to come out and spring's going to arrive early. Um, the town's modern-day celebrations are basically a, a kind of ritualized version of this. The town all comes out at 7 a.m. and uh, asks a groundhog whether or not spring is coming. Now, Phil, of course, in the movie, uh, he thinks this tradition is stupid. He thinks the people of Punxsutawney are idiot hicks and has no problem voicing his contempt for them. Punxsutawney Phil, the seer of seers, prognosticator of prognosticators, emerged reluctantly but alertly in Punxsutawney PA and stated in Groundhog Ease. I definitely see a shadow. 
Sorry, folks. Six more weeks of winter. The whole Groundhog Day celebrations, they're not really connected to the plot of the film. Not directly. Like, the celebrations, they just kind of play out in the background. But um, on the level of theme, uh, they're very much connected. For the people of Puxatawney, uh, Groundhog Day is basically this, uh, it's this little theatrical ritual where the town gets to pretend that it's, um, it's at the crossroads of two distinct futures. Do they get spring? symbolizing new life, redemption, and uh, let's not forget, fucking. Or um, do they get six more weeks of winter, symbolizing struggle, incarceration, sadness, death? Do they get to take the path that leads to new life? Or do they continue along the path of sadness and longing? It's this uh, symbolic fork in the road um, with the deciding factor to the fate of the town coming down to this utterly arbitrary event, you know, whether or not a groundhog sees a shadow. It reminds me a little bit of that classic example given to explain chaos theory, you know, where uh, depending on how a butterfly flaps its wings in Beijing can change whether or not there ends up being a hurricane in Texas the following week. This idea of infinitesimal interconnectedness, you know, small changes leading to big changes, knock-on effects leading to knock-on effects. I mean, if the whole livelihood of a community can be altered simply by the decision made by a single groundhog, like, what does that tell you about fate? Maybe it tells you that um, the road to happiness is not clearly signposted. You know, the things that we have to do to get the good ending um, might seem completely arbitrary to us at the time. Almost uh, to specifically hammer that point home, the, uh, the ritual Groundhog Day is almost like intentionally the wrong way around. You know, the groundhog sees its shadow because it's bright, but somehow a sunny day means we're going to have more winter. However, if he doesn't see a shadow because it's overcast, that means we're going to have sunshine all of a sudden? That's, that's, that's perverse. But I don't know. Maybe it's perverse because... Maybe it's perverse because cause and effect itself is sometimes cross-grained. Right? You try to do the right thing, but it leads to the bad timeline. You try to do the bad thing, it leads to the good timeline. The, the Groundhog Day ritual almost seems like it's deliberately structured to remind its participants that they can't game the system. Your future lies in the hands of a groggy rodent. What can you do with that information except let go of the future, right? Let go of the future and let the chips fall where they may. And, um, in that respect, like the moral lesson of Groundhog Day, the festival, is very much in agreement with the moral lesson of Groundhog Day, the movie. Because Weatherman Phil Connors is basically going to have to learn the exact same thing. Phil is going to have to learn to let go of the future and find a way instead to live in the present moment. And that's going to mean changing his relationship with desire. He's going to have to stop forcing his needs and desires onto others 
and learn to accept the world as it is. God, it is so good to see you. Uh, what are you doing for dinner? Uh, something else. And it's not easy for someone like Phil to accept this lesson. I mean, first of all, he's a weatherman. You know, his job is to literally know the future. Also, this is Phil's fundamental character flaw. Phil always thinks he's two steps ahead of everyone else. This is the exact thing that makes him so cynical and antisocial. Even before the time loop, right, Phil always thinks he can game the system. He always thinks he knows better than everyone else. And it, this is the quality that, that makes him a dick and you know, stops him having meaningful relationships with people. If Phil could only learn the true meaning of Groundhog Day, he'd be changed for the better. But in order to learn that lesson, something dramatic has to happen to Phil in Punks of Tawny. So what happens? Phil wakes up in his hotel at 6am on the morning of Groundhog Day. He covers the celebrations with as little effort as possible. Before the trio can leave town again, a blizzard rolls in, closing all the roads and transport systems. The team are forced to spend another night in Punxsutawney. When Phil wakes up again the following morning, rather than it being February the 3rd, it is February the 2nd all over again. The events of Groundhog Day have been erased. No one remembers them but Phil. This phenomenon happens again the following night as well. And so on. And so on. Phil gradually realises that he is trapped in a time loop that no one else is aware of. He can never escape Punks of Tawny because of the blizzard. And after 24 hours... Any progress he makes gets erased from the board and he must start all over again. Because the film is a mainstream comedy, uh, it's forced to underplay some of the nightmarish implications of what's happened in the film. We feel, as an audience, like we can relate to Phil's journey, but I think the reality of that scenario, like the the psychological torture of it is so dehumanizing that I suspect that the, the reality of it is actually completely outside human cognition. Underneath the, the gentle score and these endearing character actors, I think at its heart, the story of Groundhog Day is cosmic horror. It's this Lovecraftian torture. It is such a grueling way to teach someone not to be a dick. Sometimes films, they feel like highly specialised torture devices for their protagonists. You know, machines perfectly calibrated to exploit the protagonist's weakness and force a confession out of them in some way. I think Groundhog Day's uh, whole time loop phenomenon is, uh, is, is a really interesting choice of punishment for Phil. Because sometimes in films, people learn the value of something by having that thing taken away from them completely. Oh, I hate my baby brother. Okay, what if David Bowie came and stole your baby brother? Oh, all right, I don't hate him so much anymore. That's often the formula. But Groundhog Day 
does and choose that particular pedagogical approach instead it goes for um, the opposite tactic in order to teach Phil to let go of the future the film uses uh, this whole supernatural conceit to give Phil actual real life knowledge of the future in fact it gives Phil infinite chances to study the future until Phil doesn't just think he's two steps ahead of everyone else he really is two steps ahead not just two steps he's, he's 10 20 50 steps ahead of everyone else Phil knows exactly what everyone is about to say before they say it the movie lets Phil become the asshole god that he always believed himself to be it's like uh, if you ever got caught smoking as a kid and then your, uh, your parents make you smoke the whole pack as punishment. Rather than taking something away, they're trying to overload you on it. And of course, what Phil finds is, even bestowed with these incredible powers of precognition, Phil discovers that he still can't control the future. The interconnectedness of the universe is still too vast. The variables remain infinitely complex and that means no matter how hard phil tries to seduce rita he cannot game the system in his favor he cannot make her love him the way that he has grown to love her and so in the end phil realizes that he has to use his gift to change the only thing that he does have the power to change which is himself phil eventually learns to turn his ambitions inwards. He finds things that make him happy in the moment. He makes things, uh, fully aware that these creations of his are going to completely disappear, mandala-like, at the end of each day. Which is probably why one of the things he chose to make is ice sculptures, right? It's kind of cooked into the, the whole art form. And just like his artistic creations, Phil decides to help people, even though he knows 24 hours later they won't remember, because the act of helping, in the moment of doing it, it makes him feel good. Phil finally lets go of the future and gives himself selflessly to the good of the town. has announced the most drastic limits to our lives that the UK has ever seen in living memory. The aim, he says, is to save lives in this time of national emergency. So now here we are in 2020. Is this really anything like Groundhog Day? I'm not sure. Like Phil trapped in his punks a tawny cage, the surface area of our lives has certainly shrunk to a handful of boring locations would probably deal with more repetition than before. The same activities over and over. Work, eat, sleep, repeat. No means of external escape. Uh, you know, these connections feel kind of spurious. Yes, there's repetition, but... It's not really like Groundhog Day, right? I mean, it's possible that the film feels more unsettling in 2020 because... Maybe it's because the thing that keeps Phil trapped is completely invisible. Maybe that's it. There's no evil book in the Punks of Tawny library that Phil needs to destroy to lift its curse. There's, there's no asshole wizard that Phil needs to beg for forgiveness. There's no time crystal set into, I don't know, the 
throne of the groundhogs in some royal chamber deep beneath Pennsylvania. There's nothing to smash. There's nothing that can be reasoned with. There's nothing to focus on except ourselves. The situation, it just simply is. And um, that's a painful situation for any human being. As a species, we're not good at agreeing on things we can't see when it comes to accepting invisible systems as a society, you know, we're getting worse. So maybe that's why we relate to Groundhog Day. It's a weird combination of experiencing a reality-shifting cosmic event that's still frustratingly invisible to the naked eye. So if you look out your front window, it's just the same boring view as it ever was. tell you the um part of groundhog day that's uh probably the hardest to relate to right now um it's this idea of um using this time to um learn to play the piano fuck off mate yeah i, I can't really entertain the idea of um using this time wisely i just um i just can't handle that and uh, I think that bleeds into the, the bigger version of that same thought, you know, the idea that we collectively, as a society, as nations, could use this as, a, as an opportunity to become better. I mean, like, you know, I want to be positive, but... M- maybe a positive interpretation would be to say that um, we're just not there yet. And that um, hopefully, given enough time trapped in this loop, the world will find humane ways to adapt and even thrive within these new restrictions. That our nations will stop obsessing over controlling the future and instead focus on giving their people what they need now, right now, in in this moment. All of us as a species collectively approaching the same point of enlightenment that Phil Connors reaches at the end of Groundhog Day. Yeah. Maybe. Right now, though, it feels more like we're just rolling around in the film's second act. You know, hate-eating cream cakes and slapping each other. But maybe, maybe on a long enough timeline, we'll get there. Maybe we can follow Phil's arc all the way through to the end. We just need to give ourselves enough time because only after being given enough time can we realise, like Phil, that there is never enough time. Hey, speaking of time, uh, here's an interesting bit of Groundhog Day behind-the-scenes trivia. There's a long-running debate as to exactly how many years Phil Connors is trapped inside Groundhog Day. Uh, The culture website Wolf Nards estimates the length of Phil's imprisonment to be eight years, eight months, 16 days. With this number being based on various clues to time passing dotted throughout the story. Um, The movie Truth Review series goes slightly higher with 12 years, six months, 11 days. 
However, um, the website What Culture suggests a much higher number, which they say is to account for the fact that by the end of the film, Phil is seen to be master piano player, ice sculptor, etc. So going with the whole 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert theory, What Culture estimates the length of Phil's incarceration to be around 34 years. Now, director Harold Ramis has similarly inflated the number over the years. In early interviews, Ramis is on record saying that Phil was stuck in a time loop for around 10 years. But um, in later interviews, Ramis tended to estimate the film actually being set over 30 to 40 years. Hard to say why exactly, but maybe Ramis himself gained insight into this number over the course of his own life. A younger person might think that 10 years was more than enough time to master multiple art forms and change his personality. However, someone in their 60s probably has a much clearer idea of how little we grow in a 10-year period. Change can take time. You know, more time than we might think. Sadly, often more time than we have. I think it's um, a lot harder for us to relate to Phil's journey than um, we might first think. Our understanding of Phil is kind of skewed by the knowledge that he exits the time loop in the end. Just the very fact that we know that it ends, like that completely changes how we think about the time he spends inside it. It makes the period that he spends in the time loop feel infinitely more manageable psychologically if we're talking about being able to relate to the film like if the question was hey could you live in the same day for 30 years i think some people would say yes they, they could see it through but the real question should be could you make peace with living the same day forever not just even the length of your own life but forever because that was the question the phil himself had to answer Phil believed he was stuck in that day forever, and he made peace with that. Our knowledge that Phil's torture does eventually end, it makes it way harder for us to put ourselves into Groundhog Day. We can't completely abandon the notion of the future the way that Phil does. However, um, I did think of a way to possibly rectify this. Like, it's a little tweak to the plot of Groundhog Day that would let us feel the story more from Phil's perspective. And um, to make this tweak, we, we actually, we have to reinstate something from the first draft of the Groundhog Day screenplay. The story of Groundhog Day wasn't always imagined as a lighthearted family comedy. When screenwriter Danny Rubin wrote the first draft of the story, apparently it was a darker, stranger fare. The story didn't play Phil's psychological torture so much for laughs. But perhaps like the biggest difference between the original screenplay and uh, the finished product um, is the timescale. In Danny Rubin's original version of the story, Phil is trapped inside Groundhog Day for 10,000 years.
just for a context, that's 3,652,425 Groundhog Days. We might be able to laugh off a decade, maybe even three, but faced with a number like this, you're looking down the barrel at something you can't possibly expect to come out the other side of. Restoring Groundhog Day to its original time frame, it gives me that same feeling I get late at night when I look at the stars and feel so small that I feel myself disappearing. It presents a situation so vastly beyond comprehension that the only way not to go insane is to let go. Make peace with the infinite. So, anyway, I wake up in the night. My head is full of the usual COVID Boris bullshit. After 20 restless minutes, I come downstairs and uh, I put on Groundhog Day. And uh, yeah, I find myself thinking about, well, you know, the things I've just told you. And uh, I started to wonder, what if we um, rewrote Groundhog Day? Did a kind of extended edition of the story. Now, that would mean leaving most of the original film exactly as it was. It's just that um, rather than Phil exiting the loop after 34 years, instead, we would just um, keep him in there and leave him in there for 10,000 years. Just to see, you know, like what kind of creature that uh, Phil Connors uh, would become, yeah, 1,000 years later, 2,020 years later, like the same length of time from 1 AD to now, just all over again, except this time everything is permanently fixed as mid-90s rural Pennsylvania. God, like, trying to imagine what would happen to a human being who had to endure that. Just trying to perceive that length of time, I immediately get a headache. But I guess that's the point. That's the torture you have to go through to learn the lesson. So, um, in an act of sheer cruelty, I, um, I asked some other writers if they'd be interested in working on this project with me, just so I didn't have to suffer the headaches alone, quite frankly. So, coming up in part two of this little two-part series, uh, you can hear brand new fiction from Kim Noble, Daniel Coburn, Lenny Sanders, and Vanessa Kasule. Um, Vanessa's story is read by actor Rachel Ofori. Daniel's story is read by Tim Clare. And um, yeah, I wrote a couple of short pieces for the project as well. Now, I asked each writer to pick a single day from Phil's life. Any day from across this 10,000 year period. And uh, to write about that day. Um, the pieces, once collected together, I mean, they don't fit perfectly together to tell a single story. It's more like we're just dropping in on Phil at different moments in history i mean we're spanning ten thousand years here phil's not going to remain one consistent person over that time naturally he's going to evolve through being well, you know 
thousands of people. But all the same, uh, I do think that these little vignettes, they do still seem to speak to one another, even though every story was written independently without any of the writers having knowledge of any of the other stories. Now, and that shouldn't be too surprising, I suppose. I guess each writer in their own way, um, they're grappling with the same problem, which is what happens to someone when they realise that the future is never coming. It's an incredibly scary thought and so hard for us to overcome that sense of fear and to find something liberating inside it. But I think every writer has captured that, you know, that, that sense, both of the fear and the liberation. Anyway, um, I hope you like it. Part two is available right now. It's in the feed. So, yeah, whenever you're ready, it's there for you. My name is Ross Sutherland. Thanks for listening. Uh, 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 uh.